Well, good morning or good evening, Harvest Community Church. Happy Easter to you. If you're a first-time guest at Harvest Online, my name is Mike. It's great to kind of meet you. You know, this is not the Easter we expected at Harvest Community Church. Um, Easter, if, if you don't know this, is the biggest day of the year for pastors. Pastors love Easter because it's the time when everyone shows up for church, um, even people you haven't seen in a while, and they bring guests, and normally there's a lot of color. The, the women and, and girls are wearing, often wearing Easter dresses, and they look beautiful. Even at Harvest, our men kind of get dressed up for Easter. You'll see a lot of men who actually wear shirts with buttons on Easter. Uh, so this is a big time for us, and normally the, the, the stage I'm standing on and at all our campuses has flowers and decorations, but this Easter is a little unique. Um, now, if you've been listening to our devotionals uh, done by our campus pastors on Facebook, you might have heard Pastor Mike or one of the other pastors mention that that makes this Easter a little bit like the first Easter. The very first Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, as some prefer to call it because they don't like the word Easter, I don't care what word you use. Um, but the first Easter, if you remember, Jesus was, was started the day in the tomb. And starting the day in the tomb, um, all, the, all the people who would worship or celebrate on Easter, they were hiding in their homes for fear, or at least to avoid, even if they weren't afraid, the, the, the threat of death that could await them outside the doors. So in a way, this is kind of like we're reenacting the first Easter. We're we want to worship the Lord, we want to be together, but instead we're inside our homes. So we know the Spirit of the Lord is bigger than our, uh, our, our impediments to being close to one another, so let's worship the Lord together. Springtime, every spring, God puts on a metaphorical display. Well, it's an actual display, but it's also metaphorical, especially if you live in the northern part of the Western Hemisphere like we do where you would see that everything dies in the fall, right? All the leaves go uh, fall from the trees, and the trees kind of look like dead sticks. Um, there's nothing growing in the fields, or, and there's, everything's dead. There's dead seeds in the ground, and nothing's around. No birds or even a few are flying around, and um, everything's kind of quiet out there. And then every spring, as you know, Things sprout up, leaves come out, flowers come out, and it seems as if there's a resurrection from the dead, and we have this whole season of thriving life that begins in the spring. You, you can plant your gardens, you can plant your fields, things will grow that you do not want to grow, like poison ivy and weeds and whatnot, but, but it is a time of lush life, and every year we go through this cycle of death and resurrection. But you know what? This is an annual foreshadowing that God put into nature of a better resurrection. Jesus often reminds people of this, especially when he said, unless a grain of wheat fall to the earth and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the, this idea of death and resurrection that you see in nature actually has a much better fulfillment that we haven't seen yet. Yes, there will be a day when all humans who know Jesus will be resurrected. 
Now, they're not going to come up from the ground like zombies. They're going to come up with a, with a body like the one he raised. He, he put his body in the ground, and, and it died. And really, you didn't want to use it like it was anyway. It had holes in it. It had been beaten. It was lo- lost a lot of blood. It was, but it was also weak and subject to death. It was a body that could be killed. It was a body that could die. It was a body that could wear out, a body subject to disease. Well, the body Jesus woke, grew up with, it, though it was the same, it was transformed. Um, and so now it was a body that could not die, could not get disease. Um, and an eternal body, a glorious physical body. And it, it, Paul said it's like the difference between a seed and a plant. And if you ever take any of your favorite plants, whether it's a food plant or a flower, and you look at its seed, its seed is normally small and withered and ugly and dead. Um, and, and it doesn't compare at all to the beautiful plant. And, and that's what Paul says is the difference between the body that we humans, the mortal body we walk around in, and our transformed body. And one day there will be a springtime for the earth when the Lord returns and he literally makes a new earth. And then he resurrects the people of the earth who know and love him. And if you happen to still be alive, you won't go through uh, the planting, if you will, if you follow the metaphor, but you'll immediately be changed to, to have that resurrected body. So springtime is always a reminder of that future resurrection. And of course we know, or if you don't today, you're going to learn if you stick with me, that that future res- resurrection is based on and made possible by a past resurrection, the Easter resurrection. That's right, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, Easter's the biggest holiday for Christians as it should be because it's the day we celebrate that future spring because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But it's also, resurrection of Jesus is a deal breaker for many skeptics and people who don't agree with Christianity. They say, boy, I I like everything about Jesus and everything's kind of interesting. I don't know about the miracles. Maybe I could swallow a few, but I just cannot handle the idea that a dead man comes back to life. Dead things don't come back to life because they've never seen it. Nevertheless, if you're a Christian, you, the, believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not optional. There's no Christ. Some have tried to form a Christianity separate from the resurrection, but it's impossible. The, the believing the resurrection is central to salvation, right? It's central. It is not the good works you do that's central. It's not the religion you practice that's central. It's believing in Easter, that Jesus rose from the dead. Let me show it to you in the scriptures, Romans 10, 19. Here's where, where Paul writes, if, because if you confess, 10, 9, excuse me, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And we see this simple uh, formula, right, of, of, of confessing and believing. And I think we have this as a portion for our notes. It says, we confess him, we declare he is my Lord. And it's not the saying of the words. It's not like 
abracadabra. If you say abracadabra, magic is supposed to happen. Even if you don't believe in magic, it's not like that. You confess him as your Lord because you know he is your king and your boss. He is your Lord. And, but the words don't save us. They're evidence of the true faith that lives within us. The faith that believes God raised him from the dead. That's what he says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What does this mean? It means the message of Easter is the watershed for every one of us as far as our eternity. Now, I might have lost you there. You say, what's a watershed? Is that a, a, a building behind your house where you keep your water? No, a watershed, uh, for, for the few who may not know, uh, or the many, I don't know who knows what a watershed is, but it, it, it is the point where water goes two different directions on a hilly uh, geography, right? So take a mountain. You might have a mountain. Make it simple. One big mountain. And, and as the snow piles up in the winter and, and fills the valleys, it may look flat. It may look like flat ground on top of that mountain because it's all filled with snow. But when the water melts in the spring, some of the water on one side will flow that way and some of the water on the other side will flow that way. One may end in an ocean or a river hundreds of miles from where, or even thousands, where this, so the snow can be right next to each other, but it melts on this side and goes that way. So that's called a watershed. And the watershed of your eternity is believing that Jesus rose from the dead. This is what the Bible teaches, right? This is what the Bible says, whether or not you, you make it to that great springtime and are raised with Christ or whether or not you are raised in a more sorrowful moment and, and punished for your sins and thrown into punishment. You may look, you, you don't know which side you're on until the water melts, right? If you will, if you follow that metaphor. Well, what determines what side you're on? Whether or not you believe in Easter. Whether or not you believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's why, if, if I could do anything, I would convince you that Jesus rose from the dead. I would give you all the reasons that Jesus rose from the dead. I'd give you all the evidence that he rose from the dead. But do you know what the problem with this is? You might say, you can't prove it. Oh, no, no. No, no. <laughs> I, I think, it, 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 looking into it, I could prove that it's reasonable to believe he rose from the dead. In fact, it's the most reasonable theory to explain the events that happened then and afterwards. It is less reasonable to believe that he didn't. But here's the problem with me presenting you evidence and reason. Reason does not necessarily convince anybody. Now, I know that doesn't work well in the modern mind. We say we're... Children of the Enlightenment, where reason abounds. Stop. You, you may have learned that in school. You may have learned that in college, that we operate by reason. But stop and really think. Look around you. Do all the people in your life operate based on reason? Think about that. Read the news. Are people... <laughs> in other words, I can give you reasons... And people will say, well, I just don't believe it. There's people who believe the earth is flat. There's, you might be listening right now and you think I'm insulting you. I am not. The earth is not flat. The evidence is everywhere. But as you know, <laughs> reason will not convince. And you might think, well, I don't think the earth is flat. I am too reasonable for that. There's always some area 
probably many areas in each of our lives where reason does not dictate what we believe. We have deeper motives than reason. So I could give you all the reasons and we could do a long apologetic thing, but I don't think that would convince you. Because if you don't want to believe it, you'll go, well, that is reasonable, but I still don't believe it. But no one can deny the truth when God testifies to an individual for himself. If I tell you the truth, and then I give you all the reasons for it, you can reject all my reasons and tell me I'm wrong. But if I tell you the truth, and God who made you convinces you that it's true, you'll say, I'm not depending on the reason. It will be reasonable. Uh, it will, we don't believe in, in blind faith. The faith of a Christian should fit with uh, history and science and facts and truth and reason. But that won't convince a human. What does convince a human? God. To know this truth, you need to interact with God. The thing is, though, God only convinces those who really want to know. So do you really want to know if he rose from the dead? If you do, God will convince you. How does God convince you? He testifies for himself when we read his word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So if I share with you the story of the resurrection from his word, and you are open-hearted to him and humble to him, then he will convince you. Because he'll never turn away anyone who wants the truth. So with that in mind, let's dive into his word. To set the stage briefly, Jesus died before sundown on Friday. It had to be before sundown on Friday because Israel looks at Saturday beginning as soon as the sun goes down on Friday. So that begins Sabbath. You can't work. And they think it's work to take a man, to have him, uh, take him down off the cross and all these things. So, so he had to die before the Sabbath. So he did. He happened to because he gave up his ghost before the sun went down on Friday. Now, at this time, all the apostles had run for the hills, and many of the other male disciples had run for the hills. And they hid because, logically, if, if the Romans are after him, they're going to be after his followers. If they're saying he's against Caesar and he's a rebel, then why wouldn't they be after his followers? And the Jewish leaders, if they turned in Jesus, why wouldn't they turn in the other and just end this rebellion right now? Um, and so they were hiding. They went to hide. But many of the women did not hide. They followed. <laughs> now, like it or not, the Roman powerful people in the area and the Jewish powerful people in the area would look at the women as invisible, as not the people who are leading the charge. They would want to get the men. And so the women, many of the women, stuck around. And they watched as two Pharisees who became believers, Josephus and Nicodemus, they were Pharisees, but then they became believers in Christ. They took his body down, and they watched him. And they watched where they put his body in the rich man's tomb. And, um, and, that, and, and, and they didn't think, <laughs> now the women, 
Women, they think differently than men. And there's nothing wrong with that. We like that. We like a world where there are women and there are men and no third choice, right? That's the true world we live in. And women think differently than men in general. And the women were watching these two men who loved Jesus take care of his body. And they were thinking, they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's not. And they loved Jesus and they wanted his body to be cared for. So they watched him put him in the tomb and they thought to themselves, we got to get back to that tomb as soon as Sabbath is over, Sunday morning, first day of the week. We're going there. We're going to get the right spices because they didn't have embalming like we have today, right? You know that, right? So this is a couple thousand years ago. So we're going to get the right spices, the right wrapping, and we're going to take good care of his body as a last act of love for our fallen hero. So they got ready to do that. They were going to have a big problem in that since he was in a rich man's tomb, it had a huge stone that uh, it was too heavy to lift, and the way they'd move them is they'd roll them. They'd roll them sideways um, so in a groove. So they, they'd probably need some, a, couple, a few men, two or three men, maybe more to push it, maybe use a lever to push it out of the way. But they'd figure that out when they got there, and that's where we take up our text at the very beginning of Luke chapter 24, verse 1. You ready? Luke 24, verse 1. I'm going to read to you now. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. This would be a great relief to these women, would it not? Somebody had already moved it. Now, it also might be a bit startling. Did someone mess with our, our Lord's body, the beloved's body? They don't know, but at least the stone is rolled away. And when they, verse 3, but when they did, went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. This would be startling, right? Someone stole Jesus is what they would have, they, would, they did not think resurrection. We have four accounts of this time from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm only reading Luke, but we know from the, all the accounts, they thought somebody stole him. It's bad enough. Imagine your loved one dies and you go through the whole funeral process just to find out the next day at the grave someone left it open and perhaps animals got in there and, and ripped your loved one apart. How scandalized would you be? Well, they were scandalized and, and, and they were disheartened and they were sad. Um, verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. These are angels. Unlike what you might have heard on television, uh, the angels that come to heaven, or messengers, uh, specifically they're called messengers, not angels, but, but we translated angels. But when they come from heaven, they look like men. We, we don't see them looking like beautiful women, which I think is an improvement on angels, but I can't tell God what to do. We don't see these great big wings on them like you see in the pictures we have some of those wild winged angels in the visions of heaven, but on earth, they always look like very impressive men. You know, like guys who spend a lot of time at the gym who shine. <laughs> Probably, that's what I envision at least. So they saw these two men um, in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, they knew these men were from heaven, right? So they're like, whoa, and they go down, and the men asked them this question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Interesting question. Why, why do you seek the living among the dead? They weren't. Were they? Were they? 
They weren't seeking the living among the dead. They were seeking the dead among the dead. They expected Jesus to be dead among the dead. This reminds me of the early 1970s. There was a man who was very disturbed about Christianity because he knew it was all a joke, right? He was like Dawkins today and Sam Harris. He knew it was all stupid. And, and this lie had been perpetrated on Western civilization and the whole world for way too long. And since he was smart and he could figure things out, he was going to prove it wrong. This man's name was Josh McDowell. And he said, if I'm going to prove wrong Christianity, he, he examined it closely and saw all the ways he could prove its error. But he said, the best way to undo this thing is the resurrection. He correctly surmised that the one miracle at the heart if you want it, if the Achilles heel, if you want to take out Christianity, all you have to do is get rid of the resurrection. Find the bones of Jesus. Get rid of, find the body. Show that it, he didn't rise from the dead. And so that's what he began to work on. And he worked and he worked and he studied and he studied. And, and then what happened to Josh McDowell? Well, just like those women in the first century, he went looking for the dead among the dead. <laughs> and just like those women would, he came out convinced that Jesus was alive. And you might say, well, tell me all the reasons why. I'm not going to. I already told you. We're not going there. I want God to convince you. If you want to read it, he wrote books, right? Look up Josh McDowell. He actually wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You can go read it, right? And he'll tell you the evidence. But I don't think it was the evidence simply that they convinced him. I think God had to convince him. I know God had to convince him. Well, like Josh McDowell, these women went looking for the dead among the dead. The angels are like, um, you're not looking for a dead guy. You just think you're looking for a dead guy. What a cagey way to say it. They could have started with, you know, you think Jesus is dead, but he's not. And then they could have had a conversation and told them what happened. They didn't angels are messing with the women. They're messing with them. They're like, they're not going to make it easy. They say, why are you looking for the dead among the dead? You know, they can say, well, we're not looking for the dead or the living among the dead. We're we're looking for the dead among the dead. He ain't dead. He ain't dead, lady. They could have said that kind of in a New Jersey way. Hey, he ain't dead, lady. But they didn't. So why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's got their attention. Then in verse 6, the angel goes on. He's not here. <laughs> we can see that. He has risen. Okay. He has risen. And then he says this. Watch what the angel tells her. Remember. What does remember mean? It means go back to something you already know. They're like, remember what? We don't know. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee? Now you... They, Jesus didn't just travel with the 12. In all the movies, there's just 12. I've been watching that show, The Chosen, which is really good. And for some reason, they can't come up with a crowd. Jesus is, does the miracle of the fish, where he multiplies the fish for the, the nets. And it's supposed to have a huge crowd pushing in the water. And they got like 10 people. <laughs> which is, I'm like, can't you get a crowd? Um, it doesn't make any sense. I have to stand on the boat so they can hear my voice. You know, I'm liking the show, but that's the stupidest thing. He had these huge crowds following him, but the movies always make it just a few people. And the 12 were chosen from among a larger group of disciples who were willing to follow him, right? Most of the crowds weren't willing to give their lives for him, but there was probably a 
between 100 and 500 people who will were, and there were dozens who traveled around with him. Right? Yes, he gave special attention to the 12, but he did not leave the women out or some of the other men out who weren't apostles. They learned much that the apostles learned. And he said, ladies, this is what the angel said, ladies, don't you remember while he was in Galilee that he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third third day rise? And what's it say next? And they remembered. They remembered his words. So that means they'd forgotten his words or they didn't pay attention to his words None of them did. All of them were so convinced Messiah was going to uh, get rid of the Romans and, and definitely not suffer, definitely not die. And, and they didn't think the scriptures said he'd suffer and die. And none of the apostles thought it. So they heard it and they didn't, couldn't compute it. But now they're like, oh yeah, he did say that. So now what's going on in their minds? First, Jesus isn't here. We're scared. Someone stole him. Then these angel-looking dudes are saying, he's alive. Huh. And he told you he'd be alive. And returning from the tomb, they told all these to the 11 and to the rest. It says the 11, not the 12. Why? That's right. You probably thought, (laughs) I can't hear you talking in the room I'm in, but probably most of you got it. Judas is a goner, right? Uh, I need 12 good men. Could only find 11. Well, Judas is a goner. And the 11 doesn't mean that all 11 were in the room. That kind of represents, they, they would replace Judas later, and they'd be called the 12. Often the apostles are referred to as the 12. Here they're referred to as the 11. As it turns out, Peter probably was not in the 11. Because as we can see from other texts in the Bible, after the women left, two things happened that aren't in here, and they don't necessarily come into the story here, but I want to make sure you know they're there. One of the ladies stayed behind. One of the ladies stayed behind, and her name was Mary. There are a lot of Marys in the Bible. This was not his mom, though, okay? And, and, and one of the ladies stayed behind crying, and, uh, and Jesus actually showed up and talked to her, as you can read in another gospel. But then another thing happened. When the ladies were on the way, the ladies went back, and they said, well, let's read it. Let me show you. <laughs> actually, it's right here in the text. Look at verse 10. Um, now, it was Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other two women with him who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. They didn't believe them. Uh, some, some have preached this and said they didn't believe them because they didn't believe women. Maybe, but I think you're reading into the text. I think you're thinking like a modern feminist trained brain to think it was always oppression. Um, if you remember, Thomas is going to, he's not among the, 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 the 12 when Jesus finally shows up to them all in a group, and he doesn't believe the other men either. I think it's just really hard for them to believe. But even though it's hard to believe, they can believe that the tomb's open. And Peter, their leader, says, I'm done being scared. I got to go see this. And that's what happens next. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen claws by themselves, and he, and he went home marveling at what happened. He was like, because the linen claws had been wrapped on the body of Christ by Josephus and Nicodemus when they prepared his body. In other words, he was kind of looked like a mummy. He wasn't mummified, but he was wrapped up in cloths. And they weren't wrapping him up. They were right there, folded up. Who, wait, if someone stole the body, 
Peter probably had to be, what's he marveling at? Someone stole the body. Would they take off these linens and fold them up? What do they want? Just the, the naked body that's kind of decomposing? They, they want to touch that with their hands? Yuck. That don't make any sense. Why wouldn't they take him cloth and all? Who would fold that up? That doesn't make any sense. He's marveling. Now, what doesn't come into this story, but we know from the text in certain places, on his way back, Jesus appeared to Peter. The Bible never tells us what he said. The Bible never tells us what he said. The Bible never tells us what happened. It just tells us in two places that Jesus appeared to Peter alone. After he'd appeared to that lady, one of the Marys, he appeared to Jesus as, or to Peter as he went back. Why? We don't know. We're not told. But I can't help but think, since Peter had denied him three times, Jesus, the good shepherd, wanted to restore his captain, <laughs> the captain of his 12. He wanted to let him work it out with him. <laughs> Go ahead and cry. Go ahead and ask and restore him. Uh, we don't know. I'm only speculating. But anyway, so he, he appeared to Peter. Although that's not what, how that, that happened is not written in the text. And he would later go and appear to the 12. Um, and in this case, Thomas won't be there um, yet. So that'd be like the 10. <laughs> um, so what did Jesus do next? This is a wild thing. The scene shifts to two guys, one whose name Cleopas, whose name is in here, and the other we don't know his name. And they were in that, they weren't of the 12, but they were in that close band of brothers and sisters that followed along with Jesus. And they're leaving town. No need to stay in Jerusalem. He's gone. We're going home. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem, how long does it take to walk the average person at average speed seven miles at 20 minutes a mile? What's that, two and a half hours maybe? They were walking to Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Remember, they had went into Jerusalem because all the Jews who could get there were going to Jerusalem because it was... Passover time, just like on New Year's Eve, um, all the people shove into Times Square in New York, and you can't even walk, they, and they go. It was like that at Passover. It was the biggest festival, and they all, would, all the Jews would show up in Jerusalem, and they had shown up, and Jesus had rode in at the beginning of Passover week on a donkey, and people had hailed him as Messiah and waved the palms and said, Son of David, Hosanna, and it looked like something great. The, the crowd was buzzing. Is Jesus going to reveal himself as Messiah and take over? But then something went radically wrong on, on Thursday night. Next thing you know, Jesus is, is on a cross on Friday, and these are the things they're discussing, and no doubt they're depressed. They have have the blues. They're sad. And they're walking along talking about these things. And then look what happens. <laughs> While they were talking, verse 15, and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Who kept him? God. God the Holy Spirit. What is God doing? This, I, I, no great biblical insight here, just my own speculation and imagination. I, how do we rush past this beautiful irony? Jesus comes to them undercover. God hides their eyes so they can't tell it's the resurrected Jesus. No doubt he looked a lot better, but he couldn't have been showing all his glory, or he looked like the sun. So he, he looked like him, but not, I guess. They couldn't tell who he was. Why did God do that? I don't know. I don't know the answer to my own question. <laughs> I don't know the answer. He kind of snuck up on them and says, hey, where are you guys going? He could have said, hey, I'm Jesus. They could have got all excited and hugged him, and he could have said, settle down, let's keep walking, and we'll talk. But he didn't. He snuck up on them. Hey, what's going on? He's kind of undercover Jesus. Verse 13, or excuse me, verse uh, 17. He said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad, and probably looking shocked too. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there? Are you, <laughs> like, this is, this is that moment where someone says, have you been in a closet? Have you been living under a rock? Have you been in a cave or something? <laughs> if he had said, have you been in a cave or something, he'd be pretty close to the truth there. But, you know, you don't know what happened? We had a big commotion, and you, what, what are you, lost? How, how do you not know this? Verse 19, Jesus is, I love this, Jesus is playing him. No, tell me about it. He goes, what things? <laughs> this is awesome. Jesus is getting these two guys to tell him his story. He's like, no, why don't you tell me what happened to me? He goes, what things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man, look, good thing they said good things about him. Because, you know, you don't want to be talking smack on somebody when they're right there and you don't know it, right? So they, they said good things about, always say good things about people because you never know who's listening, right? So in this case, they, they had no problem doing that. They said concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. You wonder, as Jesus is walking along, does he go, oh my, <laughs> or does he just keep a straight face, or does he, <laughs> they don't know it's me, I don't know what he's doing there. Verse 21, and here's a beautiful thing, and, and this had to land beautifully on Jesus' ears, um, because he loved them. He said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Jesus knows he had redeemed Israel on the cross. They don't know that. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these ha things happened. Now watch this, verse 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They freaked us out. How? They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they saw a vision of angels. And they angels said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see, because John had also gone. Well, like, just to make matters worse, the women are freaking out, and there's no one at the, at the tomb. Verse 25, 
Jesus answers them. Oh, foolish ones. And I don't think he said it scoldingly. I think he said it with love, but like, oh, little, little children, come here. Come here, you, come here, you knuckleheads. Let me tell you something. Oh, foolish children and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Do you notice Jesus doesn't start with himself? He doesn't say, oh, slow to believe all that that Messiah had told you. Remember how he kept telling you? Remember Cleopas? <laughs> like from Mark 8 on? <laughs> of course, they wouldn't have Mark 8 yet. How, how, how that Messiah guy you talked about kept telling you he must suffer, he must die and raise. He didn't go there. Where did he go? Where did he go? You're slow of heart to believe the prophets. Here's a beautiful thing. God made us reasonable people. And he gave faithful people reasons to believe. So, as he formed over a thousand years the Bible of the Jews, what we call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, and until you, and, and so on, right? Through all the books of the Bible, till you get to Psalms, and then you get to all those prophets. He prophesied from Moses on about himself. And he's not asking Cleopas, didn't you believe Jesus? He's asking him, didn't you believe what? The Bible. Oh, the word of God is so important, isn't it, brothers and sisters? He's saying, the Bible told you this. Now watch what happens. This is awesome. And beginning with Moses, so Moses wrote the very first book of the Bible, so beginning in Genesis, and all the prophets, so that would be the whole, New Test whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. So Jesus on this walk, and, and no doubt they walk slow now. They weren't in a hurry. He's telling them, and here in Psalm 22, it said, look, they gambled for, my, for his robe, and they pierced him. And here in Isaiah 53, it says that he was crushed for our iniquity. Do you see that? And yet he had his place in the land of the living. You see that? You see that he has his, do you see that? And he's, he, he's telling them, this is the best Bible study ever. And Jesus reserves it for two guys. Two guys who aren't even apostles. Right? The apostles are the big shots. They're going to get statues and stained glass for centuries. I don't, maybe Cleopas gets some stained glass. <laughs> Nobody even knows the name of the other dude. But Jesus takes the time to give them the world's best Bible study. For, and what was it he wanted to show them was that the Christ should suffer. That was really the thing that, that, that tripped him up. Back in the 90s, a movie came out called The Passion of the Christ. I'm not saying you have to watch it. It was kind of difficult. There's no need to watch it if you don't want to. Uh, I saw it, and well, that's enough for me. But I think the reason the movie made such an impact around the world is the whole world forgot that the Christ suffers. The Christ suffers. That's his means of saving. And they never saw it. But Jesus showed up in the Bible. For our notes, ready? Christians, get to know the Old Testament. For it is the key to understanding the New Testament. And vice versa. Get to know the New Testament because Jesus unpacks the Old Testament in it. The whole Bible is the Bible. <laughs> Jesus gives evidence of himself in prophecies fulfilled. Again, God knows how he made our minds to reason. 
And he gives reasons to people who are faithful. Reasons aren't enough for the unfaithful. They don't care. (laughs) You could do it right in front of them and they'll say, I don't believe it. So, verse 28. Let's finish this out. So they drew near the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. I love this. Jesus is like, okay, see you cats, peace out. <laughs> I just mixed, I just mixed uh, modern peace out. That's what the youngsters say today. And back when I was a kid, when you'd call dudes cats or dudes, cats. <laughs> okay, cats, see you on down the road, Jack. That's probably the 80s. See you on down the road, Jack, I'm out of here. He's, he's faking it, though. <laughs> he's, he's more than happy to stay with them. And they're like, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. We, uh, this is the best Bible study we ever had. I don't know who you are, but you ain't getting away. This is the best news we got since Thursday night. Stick around. But the way the Bible says is this. <laughs> they urged him strongly, <laughs> which means they didn't just say, like, like in the movies, wouldest thou stayest in our home. No. They were like, hey, hey, dude. No, come on. Got plenty of room. My wife won't mind. I'm sure she won't mind. I'd call her, but we haven't invented phones yet. Come on home. She, she always has extra matzo soup. It'll be fine. Come on, come on. Please come on, please come on. They're urging him strongly. Stay with us. It's almost evening. It's getting dark. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened by who? God. And they recognized him. Hey, it's him. Boom, he's gone. And he vanished from their sight. This is just great theater. Jesus is just messing with them. <laughs> and you, you know, just, I don't know what the emotions of the risen Lord were, but do you think when he first saw them walking down the road and he knew what God wanted him to do, he said, this is going to be fun. And then, hey, it's him. Boom, he's gone. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked on the road while he opened the scripture? In other words, they're saying, why didn't we recognize him? Verse 33, they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. Now, they said it's almost dark. It's a two and a half hour journey at a regular walk. They probably hightailed it. Nevertheless, they don't care if it's dark or not dark. Remember, they don't have street lights then. So dark is a hard time to walk. And they found the 11. And Tom, well, let's go, forget it. We're going to stop here. No more details. And they found the 11 and those who were with, with them gathered. So it's not just apostles. It's some of the ladies, some of the other men. And the Lord has, they said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So Jesus must, before he disappeared, uh, had let them in on the fact that Jesus had a secret meeting with Peter. And the 11 doesn't know that. <laughs> and, and, and they told him what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Oh, there's, isn't that a great report? There's more. But, but it'll take us a long time to read all the texts on the resurrection. We're going to stop right there because these guys declared what we need to hear. The Lord has risen. Now, some of you at home said he has risen indeed. And he has risen indeed. All that Jesus said about dying and raising is true. All that Moses and the prophets said is true. 
Everything in God's word is true. And that means that all the promises Jesus made are true. Right? Jesus said he's going to redeem Israel. They thought he, they meant he's going to cast off the Romans and bring in a messianic age. But he meant redeem. What's redeem mean? Buy back. Buy back from what? Satan, sin, judgment, death, and hell. How, what's the cost? The wages of sin is death. So he gave his, the, the currency was his blood. So he gave his life on that cross to redeem Israel and anyone in the world who believes in him. And all his promises of the future, they're true. He's coming back. Some of you say, well, I believe in Jesus. I just have trouble believing he's coming back. Look, don't be, oh, foolish heart, slow to believe the prophets. All those great promises of the Messianic kingdom, they will happen. (laughs) Don't be a foolish heart, slow to believe the prophets. If Jesus said he's coming back, he's coming back. John 14, he said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may also be. A new heaven and a new earth are coming. And you can count on that promise. Why? Because he is risen. It all hinges on that. Last bit of note-taking before we close out on the last text. He came to die because his holy life, his human body, his human blood were the currency of God. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. Now, if you're listening to me today and you think, well, I ain't that bad. Well, maybe you ain't that bad by whatever measurement you use. But if you and I were to stack up all that we have done that's sinful to God, that he can remember, not you or me, and we stood before a holy God, we'd find out we are wretched sinners who do not deserve to stand in his presence. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. But he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Jews were told, bring a lamb, white, unblemished, without spot, not broken. And on the Passover, Offer it for the nation. Offer it for your family. Many lambs die. Well, the Bible says Jesus is not a bad lamb, but he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Though all those lambs were images and they tasted good, but they didn't really take away sin. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In order for you to get to heaven, you need to eat it. And I'm not talking of communion bread. I mean Eat means faith in him. You must believe he's the son of God. You must believe he's the Lord. You must believe that he rose from the dead. Let's end by looking at the scene of his death. There's something very profound that happened when he died. The Bible said in the Old Testament, it was prophesied, he must be counted with the transgressors. It means he must be called a criminal and die with the criminals. And he did. And it also said then, but he will be within a rich man in his death. And he was laid in a rich man's tomb to fulfill the prophecies. So when he was hung, there were two people with him. We like to call them robbers or murderers. 
We don't know exactly what they did, but whatever it was, it was so bad (laughs) that they were being hung. Now, Romans might hang a Jew for any reason, but these guys seem to be particularly bad, as the text will show us. So there's three criminals up there. There's three criminals. There might have been more. It says there was one on either side. I don't know if there were a couple others. It doesn't say there weren't, but I'm going to assume there were just three. But there's three criminals up there. And one of the criminals is an innocent man, Jesus. He's not really a criminal. And the other two represent the whole human race. And before we read this portion, I want you to know that you are on one of those crosses. You say, well, I wasn't there. You were allegorically, metaphorically. Because once you hear the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection, and God testifies to you the truth, which he did, because he always attends his word, now you decide whether you're going to listen to him or push him out. And that's what those two men, they were Jews. They knew what was going on in Jerusalem. They'd heard of Jesus. They knew the story. So they knew what you knew, maybe a little less. And each one made a choice on that cross. And that's your choice. Let's read it. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he's... He is that person who says, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Why do God can't be good? How can there be a good God when there's evil in the world? How can God be good? And he's hanging. He's like, how can, if you're God, why am I dying? You must not be very good. You ever said that? The other guy is the more open-hearted guy. Look what he says. The other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Would you shut up? (laughs) This is a man of God dying next to us. Probably Messiah. And you're railing at him like an idiot. If you're going to die, if you're going to meet God, the last thing on your lips better not be a curse, he's saying. What's wrong with you? And then he says this, watch this. For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. That's how you know they're wicked men. Criminals never say they deserve it. Well, I really shouldn't be here. I shouldn't have been there. And the judge was mean to me and he didn't like me. And I I had a bad lawyer and I probably should be free. Not this guy. Not this guy. He's like, you and I know each other. I know you're pretty doggone wretched and you're getting what you deserve. And I know I'm pretty doggone wretched and I'm definitely getting what I deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Somewhere on that cross, on that day, this man came to believe in Jesus as Messiah. He didn't learn it in Sunday school. He didn't learn it in church. Well, for them, Saturday school and synagogue. In fact, he didn't do any good deeds. He says by his own mouth, if anyone deserves to die, it's me. His only... The only thing he did was appeal to Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Well, of course you know what he said. He said, no, not you. There's no time for you to fix what you broke. There's no time for you to turn over a new leaf. There's no time for you to go back to church and get yourself straightened out. He didn't say any of that, did he? 
I'm kidding. He didn't say that. Here's what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, when, the, when Jesus said, I'll give my spirit to you, and later the man would die, we'll talk there in the presence of God, and you're going to be just fine. <laughs> what happened to the other guy? You don't want to think about the place of torment he went to. My friends, that's the whole human race. I want you to catch this. It's very important to catch. Neither man on the sides of Jesus was better morally. Neither could judge the other because they were both under God's judgment. The only difference between the two was one believed in Jesus as Messiah and asked him, what about you? Has God convinced you of the truth as I've told it to you? That Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for sins, that he rose on the third day, that he's coming again? That you need him for salvation? Has he convinced you of that? Then it's time to reach out. And you might say, well, I don't know if I can reach out. (laughs) That sounds too simple. Well, you just saw it. You just saw it. My grandfather was dying and I'd, I was a pain in the neck to my grandfather when I was in college. I lived with him a couple years, and, and here I was, a hot-shot young man, and I was a brand-new Christian, the worst kind, and I was, <laughs> well, it's a good thing to be, but I mean, I was a little young, and, and I just told him, well, you need to be saved and all these, and he didn't want to hear it. Next thing you know, he gets cancer. Well, not next thing. It took years, and he's going to die. I visited him at the hospital in Texas, and I I take them up on the roof to smoke. Because if you're dying of lung cancer, they'll let you smoke. (laughs) What the heck? (laughs) And he could, his brain was in and out. So I said to him, I thought, I don't know what to say to him. But he's about to face eternity. I said, Pappy, remember that man on the cross? He said, yeah. And I think he got it. And and he finished his cigarette. It was getting cold. And as I'm wheeling him in, I was telling him about the man on the cross. When I got to the elevator, I said, Pappy, all that man on the cross did was say, save me, Jesus. Would you say that? He said, save me, Jesus. Now, I don't know where his brain was. I pray to this day I will see him when I get to the other side. But here's one thing I know. My God delights to save. He wanted to save my Pappy, and I, I think he'll be there. And you might say, well... <laughs> I'm at home. I'm not even in the room. How can I? Listen, it's not me who saves you. It ain't church that saves you. It's Jesus. I got a call last Sunday afternoon from a a fellow who's kind of a new friend, even though his wife I've known for a while. His name's Gary. And he he married a young uh, woman who went to our church. She'll like that I called her a young woman because she's about my age. (laughs) And and they moved to West Virginia. And, And he... He called and said, something happened during your sermon. Because I preached to him. I, I just preached what I just preached. Nothing special. Oh, it is special, but I didn't. Anyway, you get it. And he said, I don't know what happened. I had to go in the kitchen and cry. And my wife said, talk to me. He says, I can't. I'm overtaken. He said, it's like I saw Jesus in a new way. And he was telling me, I was raised the son of a pastor and I knew all these things. I was like, 
Those people who, who knew Jesus was a good guy, but they didn't know who he was. And I became like Peter, who saw he's the son of God. And I realized that me- I don't want to say this because it felt like I got saved, but I've known this my whole life. Then he, we had a good conversation, that was it. He called me back just yesterday because he, he had to set the record straight. He said, I got up this morning and I knew what I had. The truth is I was never saved. I was never saved. So I thought, I got to call my mother. But I don't want to insult my mother. She's a pastor's wife. <laughs> so I called her and told her that I had a kind of a, an encounter with God during a sermon. And she asked me, well, you know you're saved, right? And she said, he, he said, he told her, he says, well, since you brought it up, Mom, I got saved this week. Made her day. But that wasn't enough. He had to call me to set the record straight. He says, Pastor, I want you to know. He didn't want to goof around. He says, I knew it was true, but I got saved last week. Of course, that's terrific. That's the work of God. Could be you. You might know about Jesus. You might even have always thought good things about Jesus. You may not have even thought twice that he rose from the dead but you never called him your Lord, never saw that he's God, that if he's God, you should respond to him by giving your whole life, and never received the joy this man has. You can do it right now. If a thief dying on a cross could do it, you can do it. Or you can die the other guy. You'd say, well, I'd never curse Jesus. My friend, if you don't curse him, but you don't receive him, you are cursing him. You're just more passive-aggressive about it. You're saying, I don't want that. I'm urging you. Give your life to Jesus now. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you. If God's working, he'll work in you. Father in heaven, I'm praying for, I don't know who I'm praying for, whoever you're talking to. I wish we were in the same room. We're not. But you're in that room with them, him or her. If that's you, the him or her that I'm him or her that I'm talking about, I want you to pray to Jesus right now, right where you are in your living room. Just pray to him, right? And, and if you say, "Well, I don't know what to say," say what? Let me make it easy. Just pray what I'm praying if you believe it. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. Just pray it. Thank you for sending Jesus to die, and thank you for raising him from the dead, I believe. And I believe he's coming back for his own. Jesus, please come back for me. I give you my life because you are the Lord. Please come into me. If you prayed that to him and meant it, he will never turn away from you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.